Let me pray for us really quick, and uh, we'll get going. If you did not get a handout, they're in the very back, so feel free to, to get up and, and grab one of those if you want. It might be helpful to, as we go through this to kind of follow along with that handout as well. Well, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come to you today. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. God, we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us. God, we know from the scriptures that one of the great sins of humanity is the fact that we um, are not thankful and grateful to you. So God, I pray this morning that we would be those things, or that we would be thankful for the provisions that you provided for us. But God, in the midst of that, help us, dear God, even in our own sinful hearts, to not love those provisions more than we love you. So, Father, I pray this morning that um, as part of this topic of idolatry that we look at, this is a part of our, all of our sinful hearts that we see through the course of human history. God, we, may we use this time to be reflecting um, and be reflective about your goodness and your kindness and your grace toward us, even in our own sin. And so we pray these things, Lord, I ask them in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, welcome back. Uh, to biblical theology. One of the things we did last week is that I gave you kind of a two-part overview, two good things to look at when we talk about biblical theology. So really briefly, when we, when we, we look at the, the theology or biblical theology, we want to look at what's called the meta-narrative. And that's just a big fancy word for the overarching storyline of the scriptures, right? Now, I've used this illustration. I'm not going to bring it up today, but um, or show you that today, but one of the things we, we talk about when we mean that is that the story has, is a bit like a puzzle that's put together, but we have the completed, we have like the box, right? We have the completed big picture of that. But we want to see how these stories, these puzzle pieces fit together, or better yet, how the Lord has, has put them together in that way. And so one of the good things, and one of the kind of proper ways that we want to look at biblical theology, because this is the way that God has revealed himself, is through a couple of lenses. And so last time we looked at kind of an overview of that. And one of them is this idea of a promise fulfillment, right? Particularly through the covenants. God promises something and then it's ultimately fulfilled, right? And then the other thing we looked at last time, this big fancy word of typology, right? Now we know that word, I didn't bring that out too much last time, but we know that word comes over into our language really easily, the word type. So, for example, no one under 30 are familiar with this object, but it used to be in great use uh, for all of us who are older, and that's the instrument of a typewriter. Right? No one knows what that is today. Um, but a typewriter is a good kind of illustration of what we talk about when we mean type. As a matter of fact, the word type means to strike something to create an image. So if you use a typewriter... The, the, the type on it striking the piece of paper, creating that image, right? So a type is an example. It's a pattern. And we looked at that last time, um, how the Bible set up, how God set this up in the issues of types. So we looked at kind of three things really quick, right? We looked at people, there are types of people, events. So we, we talked through some of those things. And then we looked at the issue of institutions, or offices, and that's where I kind of camped out last time with that, okay? Well, that's kind of where we've gone, and that's kind of where we'll pick up today as well, particularly with this topic uh, of this particular story. So to start this off, I have a question, and this is going to require you to think a little bit, and I'm encouraging you, this is a good way to meet somebody else, by the way, Um, I'm encouraging you, and we're spread out, I know, to think through this question, I'll give you just a couple of seconds to do that, and then maybe talk to one another, someone beside you, how, what, what your answer is to this question, okay? So here's my question, and I'm going to purposely pause and let you think through this question and then talk to one another about this question. So here it is. What do you think was the greatest worship service ever recorded in Scripture? I'll say that again. What do you think was the greatest worship service ever recorded in Scripture? Either Old Testament or New Testament. So I'm going to pause. I'll let you think about that. 
and then I'll let you hopefully talk to somebody next to you. How would you answer that question? Give you a second to do that. All right. <laughs> it may sound like a trick question, and I have to tell you a little bit of it is, maybe. She hate that. But I'm interested to hear what you have to say on this. Um, so my question to you was, what's, what's one of the greatest worship services ever recorded in the Scriptures? Old Testament, New Testament. What do you got? Yes, ma'am. When Solomon dedicated the temple. How many people in here got that one? Oh, wow. Four or five, all right. What else? Pentecost. Yeah, anybody got that one? Yeah, okay. Any others? Yeah, Isaiah 6. It's a great chapter. We'll actually look at that chapter today. Um, when Isaiah reaches the moment where he realizes what a sinful person, this is the most holy person in all of Israel, and he realizes how sinful he is compared to this holy God, right? So this is this great picture that we see. Anybody else? Yes, sir. When Paul and Silas prayed in the prison. Yeah, that was pretty eventful. Yeah. Anybody else? Revelation 7, can you tell us about that one? What that was like? Or will be like? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Any others? Oh, would you, let's vote on it then. Who said Revelation 7? We like voting. I like that too. Yeah. What else got a different one? Well, this is a bit of a tricky question. And when I was thinking through this question this week too, because I thought of this question from someone who asked this a long time ago, and it stunned me um, to think through this question in that in a different lens, maybe. Because I came up with some similar ones that you did, and a lot of you came up with some different ones as well. But one of the greatest worship services, maybe, do that in there, maybe that's ever been recorded in human history, is one that's probably the most unlikely one that we would run to. And one of the greatest worship services that was orchestrated in the Old Testament, and it was quite an event, um, there were altars. There was a lot of singing, and it was really loud, excessively so. As a matter of fact, this event was so loud and the singing so great that one of the people who was not at this worship service 
got close to it, like walking back toward it, and all of a sudden realized, I, I, think, I think they're going to a battle cry. I think they're maybe going to war. And one of the other gentlemen who was with this younger guy said, no, that's not a battle cry you're hearing. That's singing. That's so, I'm inserting to the text here. He didn't really say this part, but essentially saying that's a worship service. They built not just altars, they built an image to worship God. And they were, matter of fact, we're going to see this in the text, they were having a really, really worshipful time and a good time. They were playing. Anybody guess? The what? Exodus 32, the golden calf. This is one of the greatest, perhaps, worship services that we see. But I think we would all agree we'd have to put that in quotes. There was worship that was going on, no doubt. And it was great. It was loud. It was, by all standards, <laughs> you know, even if that were to happen perhaps today in American evangelicalism, we like to model things if it's something that's successful. Well, if that's the model of success, it was highly successful but it was awful in the sight of God. So today's topic is one of these stories that we see. It's a theme that runs through the scriptures. Like if one of those blankets and you pull the string, like a loose string on the blanket, and all of it kind of gathers together, this string of idolatry runs through the scriptures. And the scary part of it, friends, is that this string runs through all of our hearts in here today. And it pulls, if we're not really careful, it pulls at what we worship. Well, idolatry is this main reason that God the Creator that we see in the Scriptures remind His people of this law. Matter of fact, He's going to establish this law early on to set them apart. Well, there's actually two different kinds, and you'll see this in your notes today, two different kinds of idolatry, okay? Two different kinds of idolatry. So by the way, the word idolatry, idolatre, idol worship, right? So literally the word embodies that, that, very, that very meaning. <clears throat> so two different kinds of idolatry that we see. So one is this idea, what's called crass idolatry. So this is the things that we see like in the Old Testament, right? The people of Baal worship Baal. They make these graven images. They make them out of wood and stone or any other thing, any other object. They would cut down trees. This is made out of a tree once, right? They would cut down trees and they would build things. And then they take the very things that they made with their own hands and they plop it in the middle or on a high place and they would prostrate themselves down and worship the very thing that their hands had made. Right? So this is kind of this crassness that we see than um, what typically what we think of as well. Well, there's a second type of idolatry because we live in the 21st century. We're very technological people, right? So we don't, obviously, you don't see that kind of thing, maybe in primitive villages, primitive places, but we don't typically see that in the quote-unquote modern world. We're, we're better at it, actually. We're refined at this. And what we mean by the sense of refinement or this idea of refined idolatry is that it is to take other things and replace it for God. Maybe another way to think about that is refined idolatry might be a good thing to jot down. It has a little kind of maybe more of a subtle manner to it as well. It's not just the fact that we take things like this, as I'm guilty of, right? We take things like this and we substitute it out. It could be anything. It could be exercise, whatever it is. We take anything and replace it. But there's a subtle manner to this refined form of idolatry, too. And the subtle nature of it is, is that idolatry ultimately replaces the character of God. And if I could kind of give us a theme to look at today with idolatry, it would be kind of on that same line. It would be this, really short statement, but something kind of to latch on to, okay? 
So here it is. What we revere, what we revere, right, is what we reflect. What we revere is what we reflect. Tim Keller has this great quote. I'm not going to read it all. I don't take the time to do that, but I thought it might be good to insert it so that you can read it on your own. I will pick out a couple of highlights because he, Keller, if you know much of him, very smart guy, very intuitive guy when it comes to looking at the means of which the culture um, goes about this idea of refined idolatry. And, And Tim Keller says this. He says, our contemporary society Actually, it's not fundamentally that different from other ancient cultures. Each culture has its own thing that just dominates it, right? So it has its own set of idols. So each culture has its, quote, priesthood, its totem pose, its rituals, its shrines. We have the same thing. Whether it's stadiums or TV sets or whatever it is, um, we, we go to things that we inherently love, that we revere. And the real subtlety of this big storyline of the scriptures is, once again, those are the things that we reflect, which is really interesting, how, how God has kind of set, have told the story in this way, that what we revere is actually what we reflect. So just to be clear, give you a kind of a definition of um, idolatry. Idolatry, and if we go around the room, you know, I think we could probably boil this down to something similar. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. Yes. Visible or invisible. It's funny because idolatry, these things oftentimes come in the fact we can't see God. God's invisible. He's omniscient. He's all these things. And in the world of our five senses, we oftentimes want to replace God with something that we can see, touch, taste, feel, right? So oftentimes we'll see that swapping take place with our senses of what God is. So this can happen, and it happens readily. We all know that. And it can happen both externally, outwardly. They were worshiping a calf. And it can happen internally as well, maybe more so in that way. So the story of idolatry, you see this on your handout as well. So some parts of this I'm going to go through fairly quickly, and other parts I'm going to slow down. And I'm going to come back to that story in Exodus 32, which is a really, I think, the main event. This is the, this is the showcase of stories, and it's worthwhile to read that story. God has better words than I do. <laughs> so we're going to take some time to read that in a second. But the first thing is, this is part A, that we were created. So this is a part of the, the biblical um, theology. This is this meta-narrative, right, this overarching story, that we were first created to two things, to image and to reflect. This is Genesis 1 through 3. So all of creation, all of humanity, were made. Now, I like visuals, because I'm a very visual person, so bear with me on this. We are reflective creatures. We are like mirrors in this sense. And that we were made in the image of God, right? This is one of the first things that we find out. We were made in, the, in his image and what all that means. And yes, theologians have speculated throughout the course of human history all kinds of ways that, what that means. So I'm not getting into all of that today. But one of the things we looked at last time is that, yes, we are made in his image, and that has some components to it as well. The fact that we are made in his image bespeaks the fact that we are reflective of who God is, his character and nature. That does not mean that we are God. We are not. We are the creature. He is the creator. But you have to admit in this, the text that God has uniquely made humanity in such a way, more so than any other thing in humanity or any other thing in creation, that we've been uniquely stamped by God. Remember that example I've run to two different times now. I, I'm fascinated with this story of Jesus when he's presented with that coin. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Render to God what's God. The coin is stamped with the image of Caesar. We are stamped with the image of God. And by that, we are to reflect. This is what Noah, this is what Adam was to do, was to reflect God's good character and nature. He's to take dominion. He's to rule. We talked about those offices last time. Adam fails in that. It's Genesis 3. 
Well, obviously we see that happen here as well. Adam chose, Adam chose to expand his own glory. And in that process, he chooses to worship something else in replace of that. Ultimately, I think idolatry is always to this, that we get to the idol part we think of idolatry. But sometimes, I think in the midst of that, at least for me, we lose the fact that this is a worship issue. So idol latre, idol worship. Yeah, we got the idol thing in our head. We got thinking about iPhones or whatever it is. And we miss perhaps the fact that it's the worship component of this. And that worship, and we reflect something in this worship. So we can be in a church service crying, just like we see in, the, in these stories, and yet we may be actually worshiping the wrong thing. So God has ways that he wants. You can't just approach him any way that you want. Back to what Sam's uh, uh, um, passage earlier, when we talked about that question, Isaiah 6, right? God has a particular way he wants humanity to come to him. We don't come to him any way that we want to. He has ways the which that he's prescribed for us to come to him. Um, and so we see this idea of idol worship and the issue of worship come into the effect. So because of Adam's essentially idolatry, his idol worship, he's unable at this point in Genesis 3 on to fulfill what he's been mandated to do, to be this image bearer in this fall. So instead of reflecting the character of God, he intends to reflect his own glory, not God's glory. Right? So we've looked at that in a lot of different ways and a lot of different angles. This is what the beginning of the story tells us in this way. Once again, this is kind of the onset of this theme, that what we revere, we reflect. What we revere, we reflect. And so this takes us to the main event, perhaps, in the biblical narrative. And it is a massive event that takes place. As a matter of fact, it may be the most defining event, one of them, careful with that. It may be one of the most defining events in the history of Israel, what happens in this particular thing. So part B, I'm referring to the golden calf that we, we've speculated on a few minutes ago. So as I mentioned, idolatry, the, the decades of idolatry that follow Adam leads us up to kind of to this point. Um, and it doesn't take long to do this, right? Leads us up to this point. As a matter of fact, Early on in the history of God's people, um, idolatry happens very quickly. So it tells us kind of one of the major effects of the fall of what happens. That we have a great tendency in our own sin to run to things, to replace God with things. And we see this very quickly happen early, um, in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, Israel, if you look at Exodus 1 through 14, lays out God's salvation, how he brings them out of, out of Egypt. We looked at that at that typology, right? The issue of an event that takes place, a really important event, the issue of the Passover. And then, in ver- and then chapters 19 through 20 of Exodus, God outlines the way that he makes a distinction between his people and the surrounding cultures, right? So he gives them the commandments. Anybody know what the first two commandments are, Ten Commandments? Pop quiz. Okay. I have no other gods before me. Don't create a graven image, right? So in Exodus 32, right, they've already kicked the first <laughs> two um, out of the way and have made room, although they think they're doing actually the opposite of that. It's a very interesting passage to look at. So it doesn't take long for the Israelites to engage in this. Right, um, and to, once again, take something that God has put in place and to reflect something else. So I'm going to beg your patience this morning. I don't think I've ever read anything quite this lengthy, and I actually timed myself this morning. It took me like six minutes to do this. So I'd like for us to read this narrative. It's dramatic, and rightly so. Right? So I, I can't tell the story as well as it's written, so I'm going to read it. So if you fall asleep, I'm going to kick you in the shin as we go. No, I won't do that. This is Exodus 32. Exodus 32. I think this is the main event of this story of idolatry. Yes, we'll get into other parts of it as well. 
This is quite the story. Exodus 32. Chapter 32. Yes. Exodus chapter 32. Verse 1. This is Exodus 32. A good way maybe to think about this is this kind of phrase, up and down the mountain. Right? Up and down the mountain, because we see Moses doing that. Right? He goes up on the mountain, he goes down the mountain as well. By the way, as I read this story, um, think through some types or some things that we've talked about earlier in this class. Um, particularly, I'll give you a hint about the issue of Moses. Right? So we've talked about events and people. We've talked about offices, mediator offices, right? Prophets, prophet, priest, king. Remember that? See how that shows up in this, this drama as well. Exodus 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Well, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold and from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, Well, these are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Yahweh, the sacred name of God. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink And they rose up to play. Verse 7. And Yahweh said, The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people. Your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And they've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people, and behold. I don't know if you write in your Bible. This would be a great phrase to underline if you do. Listen to what the Lord says. I've seen these people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people come back to that. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and we'd want to say Jacob, but he says Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, well, I'll give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he'd spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses, verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, tablets that were on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, 
what he said to Moses. There's a noise of war in the camp. But he, Moses, said, it's almost like this poem that, that, that uh, this short little poem that um, Moses composes here because he has this kind of repetitive nature to it. Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat. That's what you'd hear from a war cry. But the sound of singing that I hear. Verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, singing and dancing, definitely not Baptist, right? They're singing and they're dancing at this point. Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they'd made and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of the Lord, lowercase here, right? Lord, burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let any of you have gold, take it off so that I can give it to me and throw it into the fire. And out came this calf. Poof. <laughs> and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And the men, and about 3,000 of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son, his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you, for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this is the people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot, out, blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people, and they made the, uh, who made, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. That's a dramatic story. That's a dramatic worship service that Moses records here in this book. Do you notice anything about this story? Any observations as we read that? Maybe, maybe it's been a while since you've read through this story. Any observations about the story? Please. Yeah. That's exactly right, yeah. Well, God changes that, right? So my people change it back to your people as well. What else? Yeah, pretty easy, right? And he tries to mingle this, right? He builds an altar to the Lord. But by the way, when we talk about idolatry, there's another word that sometimes gets tied into this, and it's the word syncretism.
S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S, syncretism, sin meaning S-Y-N, not S-I-N, S-Y-N, to bring things together. You synthesize something to bring things together. Sometimes in um, idolatrous things, what we see in the story are bringing, you borrow things from other religions, right? And apparently, if you kind of look at the story a little bit, I mean, they've just come up out of Egypt. They're very familiar with the Egyptian gods. And so it could be that one of the things that they're mimicking is one of the Egyptian gods. In fact, there's a particular name for this god, the bull god. Um, But yet Aaron builds this altar to the Lord. So we have this kind of syncretism that perhaps is going on here too. Any other things that you notice in the story? It's, it's, uh, it's merciful and graceful that the Lord spared Aaron and, and, uh, uh, and him and all this too. Exactly right. Very good. Notice that, no, notice that Moses is the mediator here. He, he's, the, he's, the, he's the spokesperson, right? In between. Right? We see this classic institution of this um, in this story. Well, this story has all kinds of things to it. One of the things I had you to underline as we went through the story is that the way that God talks about this type of people, this idolatrous people, and he says they're stiff-necked. They're stiff-necked, right? So um, I grew up on a farm, very small community, and I was raised on a farm, around cattle all my life. And the idea of something being stiff-necked is a great description of cattle. It's a great, great description. Because this is what the people have turned into. They have bowed themselves down. They've created this God. They've made with their own hands. They've bowed down to it. And God, in his um, pointing this out, in his judgment of this, in this phrase, he's saying they're stiff-necked. They're reflecting what they're worshiping. So this reflection comes in this as well. Right? So what we revere, we reflect. And this kind of seminal moment in Israel's history becomes this. And we see this kind of language over and over again as we move through the scriptures, right? This idea of being stick, stiff-necked, stubborn, right? So we'll see this kind of language show up in a bit too. Also, too, what Moses does, you notice this, that he tries to, to essentially um, mediate with God about not, about not showing his wrath toward his people. And you notice what Moses did when he comes off the mountain? He's red hot with wrath, right? And one of the first things he does, whether it's out of his anger, maybe he's using this as a means of um, good teaching te- technique. I don't think so. I think he's just mad. But nonetheless, he takes the tablets that the Lord has written, right? So the text is really clear that the Lord, both sides of this. And he takes them, and he kind of, he lays them down on the ground. No, he smashes them. I mean, he takes these things and pops them. I broke a glass this morning, which I hate to do. And it hit the tile, and it just popped. And you know what happens, right? It goes everywhere. So at 7.30 this morning, I've got a dustpan, I'm... And I'm trying to get all the little shards of what Moses pops this thing and it shatters. He breaks these things, which is a bit reflective once again of what the people have done. They have broken God's laws. We haven't even gotten now the first two laws, and he's broken, and they've broken them as well. So the story becomes really kind of once again the main event, the reflective issue of this. This one event perhaps of all of them, will be sort of the defining moment and defining event for for Israel, too. We could spend more time on it, but we're on this kind of arch here in the storyline, and we move to the next one, which actually Sam brought up earlier. This is part C. This is, once again, we see the pattern in the story of becoming what we worship. So the pattern continues. Remember, in biblical theology, we want to look at how God has not just told the story, what does he say, but how does he say it, right? This is the means of which. So we see this pattern come about. And this particular one, I'll let you turn there. This happens in one of the most iconic chapters in all the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 6. 
This is Isaiah 6. This may be sort of the linchpin that we see for looking at the story of idolatry. It's a really kind of pivotal story in the scriptures. So verses 1 through 6 is that great scene. If you've ever read, you know I'm a huge fan of R.C. Sproul. If you've ever read anything of R.C. Sproul, you've probably read The Holiness of God, right? And R.C., in his magnanimous teaching, um, teaches over this chapter in a way that I've never heard anything like it, right? So he talks about the being in the, the, the Isaiah going into the throne room of God. So I encourage you, read this book, The, the Holiness of God. Well, set against that verse, first six verses, we have verses in chapter 6 of, of Isaiah, verses 8 through um, 13, which is a bit of a contrast here. All right, so we're very familiar with this, right? So it says, verse 8, he says, Isaiah, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. We know that, that really well. And he said, Lord says, go and say to the people. Now, this is, this is Isaiah's job description, right? So I'm going to read you this passage in a second. But essentially, Isaiah's job description is this. You're going to go preach to a stiff-necked people who can't see or hear because they don't want to see or hear. But guess what? You're going to go tell them anyway. And you're going to do it over and over and over again. And guess what? They're not going to listen to you. They're never going to listen to you. That's your job. Go do it. <laughs> right? This is his job description. Verses 8 and following. So watch what happens here. Go and say to the people. Here's what the Lord tells Isaiah to say. So you might want to mark this too. This is verse 9. Chapter 6 of Isaiah, verse 9. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to last? And he said, the Lord said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitation, and houses without people, land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and from the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will burn again, like a tenebrith or an oak, whose stump remains, and when it has failed, the holy seed is its stump. So chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah tells about this idolatry is the sort of major sin of Israel. And then we get to this most famous chapter, chapter 6, where we see Isaiah being given the commission to do this. And he does. He goes to do this. The question is, why does God do this? And maybe kind of the key to understanding this and this kind of storyline is that once again, the Israel over and over and over again keep going back to these things, right? They keep going back and worshiping other things. Now, I know and you know that the, the word idolatry is not specifically mentioned in those verses, right? It's not. But the idea most certainly is. Because the idea here is that um, they are blind and deaf, They're blind and deaf. This is one of those phrases that get used oftentimes in the scriptures about describing people's, where they're at spiritually. They're blind and they're deaf. Jesus picks up on this too in in the Gospels. Once again, what we revere is what we reflect. If we, which is what was happening with Israel, right? They were worshiping, they were chasing after other gods, and God keeps telling them, he sends all these prophets to tell them, come back, come back to me. Who's on the Lord's side? Come Come to me. And they will for a while, and they'll fall away. And they become blind and deaf because when we worship these things, these inanimate objects, they are both blind and deaf. And what we worship, we reflect. And we see that in this passage. This gets really specific when we look at Isaiah chapter 44. 
I'll let you turn over for a second to take a look at that. So the idea here of this idol worship. And through the Lord, Isaiah writing this, we see this gets really specific on how he writes about these things. Almost kind of in a mocking way. This is Isaiah 44. And I'm going to pick up at verse 12. It describes these things, how this works. How how this crass idolatry works. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He sharpens it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it with a figure of a man and the beauty of a man uh, to dwell in a house. And he cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree, an oak tree, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and rain nurses it. And then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. And he kindles a fire and bakes bread. And the same wood, he makes a god and worships it. Verse 17, and the rest of the man uh, that he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. It's really reflective of Exodus 32. Verse 18, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. This is this great judgment that comes out of this, that what we worship, we reflect. And what we reflect, if it's not God, will ultimately come to our ruin. What we worship, we reflect, and if what we reflect is not God, it will come to our ruin. And this is the most dramatic way Isaiah is showing this. He's depicting this very thing. Now, yes, this is the crass part of it. Friends, you and I both know, once again, that we are in the refined business. We are in the refining business of idolatry. We don't make wooden images. We make others. And this starts to become the warning here. Part D, this idea of bridging the gap from old to new. So obviously this does not stop at the Old Testament. This carries on. This storyline carries over into the New Testament. And it carries over in a really unique way, this this idolatry does. Yes, we don't bow down to physical objects, but it takes on a different flavor here in the New Testament. So for example, in the Gospels. So I'm under part D, from old to new. In the Gospels, we see that Israel once again is reflecting something. It's trading something. Back to that definition. This time, however, in the Gospels, it's not, Israel is not guilty of building a golden calf and worshiping it. But they are worshiping something. And Jesus steps into the scene. And one of the first things that he does is he goes to the religious people and he um, he talks about this very thing of what they've, what they've turned to worship. Right? So, for example, in Matthew 23, listen to the words of Jesus to the Pharisees. Woe to you. And this, back to this language of Isaiah, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He calls them, if you see this past, by the way, this is Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. I did not give that, I'm sorry. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and then he adds something else to it. What does he add? Do you see that? You hypocrites. You syncretic hypocrites, right? You adulterous hypocrites, because he goes on and he says, For you like whitewashed tombs. So the best teacher of all teachers, right, Jesus. He's going to give this really visual with them, right? 
you like whitewashed tombs. You're like a gravestone that's really clean, right, on the outside. Outwardly appear, you're beautiful. You radiate, you're shining. But within, you're full of dead people's bones and you're unclean. So you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, you are full of hypocrisy and what? Lawlessness. What they've done is traded the worship of idols for the worship of essentially themselves and their own tradition. And in that, not only do they miss the fact of the other people around them, they've committed the worst possible sin. They've missed who actually Jesus is. And they've traded him for this. They've They'll kill him for this. We've done that, right? We're, we're a part of this too, right? They kill him, which is the ultimate sense of trade-off here, right? So Israel's unbelief and judgment in Israel's day is a reflected pattern in this day too because they have unbelief and this judgment will come because of what they do with Christ. So Israel rejects God in flesh and they'll do it by swapping him out with something else, in this case with their own tradition. This becomes the object um, of their worship. So this worship, once again, what we revere, we reflect, and what we reflect will be our ruin if it's not reflecting God's character and nature of who he is. So we see this example with Paul. Classic case. In Romans 1, this is a great chapter. And Paul, in verses 18 and following of chapter 1 of Romans, talks about this very thing. By the way, this is not unique. This idol worship stuff, it's not unique to the Israelites. Gentiles are equally guilty. Matter of fact, we're very good at it. And Paul talks about the universality of sin in chapter 1 of Romans. That he uses the phrase exchanging, that we will exchange the glory of God for something. And if you read that passage, I really encourage you to go back and read that um, on your own. Paul will talk about it as a threefold exchanging. Um, we give ourselves over to the futilities of our... God gives us over to these things, right? To our own debasement that will reflect, once again, what we worship. Paul says eventually we'll worship graven images. We'll worship ourselves. He even ties in the sin of uh, homosexuality in this, the debauchery that comes, which is in a way a bit of reflection as well. It's a reflecting of a similar type in this sin. So Paul lays this out clearly, that we're all guilty of this. We all have the latent propensity in our sin for this too, in, in Romans 1. Paul talks about the wrath of God. Paul talks about refusing to glorify God or to thank him. Dishonoring the body. Um, to misunderstand worship. To worship the wrong thing. To having a reprobate mind. He, you give them over, he gave them over to their own thinking. To rejecting the righteousness of God. So Paul lays this out, this idea of this, this issue of idolatry this way too. A great chapter to read when you're reading Romans 1, this is your homework assignment, is to read Romans 12. Because Paul's going to do the antithesis of that too in Romans 12. So what we were, these things, we were idol worshipers, we worshipped ourselves, we were debased in our thinking, Romans 1, the condemnation of the world. But in Romans 12, Paul says, instead of wrath, well, we have mercy from God. We sacrifice to God. We give our bodies as a what? As a living sacrifice. So Paul takes this and says, in the new creation, the new creature, this is what we do. We worship the creator, not the creature, which is the thing that was flipped around in Romans 1. And we do this with a renewed mind. This goes back to Ephesians, right? With the renewing of your mind. We see this in Romans as well. We see this in Revelation. 
right? So for, for another homework assignment, go back and read Revelation 13, where we see once again the resemblance of what we revere and the reflecting of that in, in Revelation 13. Last part. This is part E. This idea of idolaters to glory reflectors. So the bad news is that this is all of us. <laughs> we have the capacity, and we're very good at it, to sin. And more specifically, we have the capacity and the wherewithal, and we're very good at it, to take our worship and to put it onto something else. We'll worship something. So that's the terrible news. How do we get out of this? What's the break in all this? How do we go from idolaters to, to glory reflectors? Friends, I don't think I have to remind you too much, but this is the mercy of God. And we see the answer to that in Isaiah 6, because at the very tail end of that part I read in Isaiah 6, 8 through 13, the Lord actually mentions this to Isaiah, that there will be a stump that's left. It'll seem completely hopeless. And out of that stump, I don't know if you've ever been on a farm, you've cut down a tree, you come back later, and out of that stump that you think's dead, it should be dead, well, there are what? There are shoots that come up. And this is, obviously, <clears throat> we're going to see this get carried out as reference to the Messiah, to Christ himself, who is this very thing, who is the shoot of David who will come. The Lord, we're told, is the potter. We're the clay. It's his mercy that we're not all left to our own idolatry. But I don't have to remind you in this grand narrative that Abraham, Abram, was a pagan idolater who was called out of the city of Ur, the city of man. That's not because Abram was looking for God. That's because God sought him and brought him out by his mercy and his grace. And friends, if you are a Christ follower, it is solely by his mercy and grace that if you are reflecting him, well, that is because of his grace toward you and toward me. Not because I'm a great person. I'm an idolater. I'm going to worship something. And my great tendency is to worship something other than God. So, What does all this matter? <laughs> I hope I've built the story up enough to not have to spend too much time answering that question. So why does all this matter? You know, Calvin in the 16th century is, you should read Calvin, but Cal Calvin makes this comment about this very idea of the human heart. And I think he's absolutely right here. I'll forego the Latin. But um, he makes this idea or he says a statement that we are, our hearts are fabriques. They're factories. They're idol factories. And we have a massive assembly line in our hearts of producing idols. And so why does this matter? It matters greatly because we show up, hopefully, I think it's a good question for all of us to ask here. When we show up on Sunday morning as a, as a body of believers, it is easy to slip and to move and to be worshipful. But to slip and to move into a form of worship that may not, might not just be um, different to God, but may be appalling to him as well. We need to, Brad preached this last week, that there's, there's essentially two types of people, right? There are those who, are, who think they are Christian, right? These carnal Christians that we've heard about. And then there's actually the true believer. And there are marks of this believer. Paul's talking about the issue of walking, walking in Christ, standing, right? And one of the great marks of a true believer is this issue of repenting and believing. Repenting and believing. This is what marks the life of a Christian. Two words that have gotten lost in the world today of Christianity, it appears, of repenting uh, and believing. Luther says this, that if 
we're not careful, once again, our hearts get into this rut of idolatry. Listen to what Luther says on this. This is the last thing I'll say. It's a quote from Martin Luther. I think I put this on the handout. He says, I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teacheth me not what I ought to do, for that's the proper office of the law. That's what the law tells us to do, right? But what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me, to wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It's also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessarily, it is, it is therefore that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it, classic Luther, right? And beat it into, the, into their heads continually. Luther's saying that even after we are converted, in the gospel, we have a renewed heart, renewed mind. We need to go back over and over again to the gospel. We're gospel people. We are repenting people. Because we are an idolatrous people. Thanks be to God for his mercy. We are not what we once were.